Produced by PI Media. Hi and welcome to Sabarism's Malicious Life B-Sides. In July 2021, Noctonos, Cyberreason's threat research and intelligence team, was called to investigate an espionage campaign targeting aerospace and telecommunications companies, mainly in the Middle East. Their investigation resulted in the discovery of a new threat actor that has been operating since at least 2018, and a new and sophisticated malware that abuses Dropbox, a cloud storage service. Cyberreason published their findings in a blog post on their website titled Operation Ghost Shell. Novel Rat targets global aerospace and telecoms firms. Nate Nelson, our senior producer, spoke with Asaf Dahan, senior director and head of threat research at Nocturnus, about the investigation and its discoveries. We bring you the interview, and if you wish to learn more about Operation Ghost Shell, head on to cyberreason.com slash ghost shell. That's it for me. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Asaf, if you could just briefly start off with who you are. Uh, my name is Asaf. I'm the head of threat research at uh, Cyber Reason. So firstly, how did the investigation that we're going to be talking about today begin? Well, that's a good question. Uh, we, we would like to start at the beginning. So at least from our perspective, we started uh, investigating this around July 2021, so this summer. My team, which is the Nocturnus team, the research team, was called along with the, uh, our incident responders to investigate a breach, an intrusion uh, that occurred in a company that is related to aerospace in the Middle East. So we were called there, and this is how this investigation started. What are the risks that face the kinds of companies that you're talking about? Why do hackers target aerospace corporations? Well, there are multiple threat actors. Uh, I mean, like the, the aerospace or the telecommunications uh, landscape is quite vast. Uh, of course, you'll have like more opportunistic or financially driven threat actors going for those uh, companies or industries. You have to remember that at the same time, there are nation state threat actors that might want to to um, conduct cyber espionage, basically. They, they would want to steal either sensitive information or the technology that is developed in, in those uh, companies. So you're called into this company in the Middle East. Um, what happens when you get there and how do you remediate the immediate threat? So we got there, we definitely saw some a very suspicious activity going on. While some of the activity included rather generic tools that you'd find in, in, in many attacks, we did came across a very interesting binary that led us to believe that, okay, this is something that is slightly out of the ordinary, and I'll get to that uh, later. It took us about, I think, a week or two to clean the environment uh, that the attackers were deployed there for a couple of months before we got to the scene. So we had to make sure that We were thorough, but uh, we were able to contain the incident. 
All right, so at this point, you've booted the attackers out of the network, and maybe you have a chance to take a breath and analyze what you found. So as you're going through your findings, uh, what starts to stand out? So one of the, you know, multi-million dollar question is how to, like, you know, who's behind it? You know, what is the threat actor mo motivation? So it's the questions that around attributions, because we said that there could be potentially many threat actors. It could be some opportunistic cyber criminals, could be governments. Uh, so we try to determine what the attackers wanted. So what type of information they were after. Um, and as well as try to establish their modus operandi, basically to profile the attacker based on what we've seen. Because uh, at Cyber Reason, like many other uh, companies, we have uh, threat profiles um, for each major APT group or a cyber criminal group and different malware. So once you hit, we started comparing, uh, you know, our notes, our observations to with all the other threat actors and malware that, you know, we, we are aware of. And we couldn't find any match, uh, especially when we saw this uh, binary, uh, one of the, the, I guess, the major attack tool, the major espionage tool that was used by the attackers. Uh, we realized that it didn't look like anything we've seen before. It was not documented anywhere in the in internet. As much as we tried at the beginning, we couldn't get any lead on the identity of, of its authors and so on. But we are very uh, persistent and curious-minded and <laughs> people at my team. So we kept, you know, uh, pulling more threads and more threads. All right. But before we go any further, I don't believe that we've yet reviewed what the malware actually looks like. Asaf, could you tell me just a bit um, how this malware is built, how impressive it is, how threatening it is, just what it looks like under the hood? We classified this malware as a rat remote access trojan. Basically, it gives the attackers um, full uh, capability or full access to the infected uh, host. Um, the attackers can run arbitrary commands, download further uh, payloads, steal information, move laterally. Basically, they can you know they can do almost everything that they want uh, once they've infected a host. And in our blog, we actually see uh, we actually. Um, uh, show some of the actions that the, these attackers took. So um, it's a rather sophisticated type of malware. In our blog, we actually look at the evolution of this malware because we found traces of this malware going back all the way to 2018 later in our analysis. But at the beginning, we just noticed it was a very sophisticated uh, remote access Trojan. Another cool feature that this Trojan had which made the uh, attribution or the analysis slightly difficult is that it did not communicate with a classic C2 domain or IP, but it communicated with Dropbox. So basically, the attackers implemented a Dropbox client baked into the malware, and they set up uh, some fake Dropbox account or just like Dropbox account doesn't doesn't have to be fake. And basically, it was a bilateral type of communication between the malware authors uh, or the operators and the malware. So the malware operators would leave commands on the, the Dropbox account in a certain folder, the, um, uh, the malware, uh, the threat, which we call shell client, by the way, 
would pull this account for every two minutes or, or so, check if there are new commands, uh, decrypt the commands, execute them, and then once it executed the command, it will collect the output or you know all the information that you know it stole and upload it back to uh, Dropbox. So that was uh, a very cool uh, way of staying under the radar because Dropbox, as you know, is a legitimate service. Nobody would, you know, raise an eyebrow if they saw, you know, some traffic going out from the network to to Dropbox or for for that matter, any other cloud-based solution, whether it's Google Drive or Facebook or GitHub for that matter. It, it, it makes it less suspicious, I guess. That's interesting. Have you ever seen attackers use something like Dropbox or Google Drive before in this kind of way? Okay, so it's a, it's a good question, Nate. So yes, actually at Nocturnus, we reported that another threat actor, uh, which we call Mallrats, had used Dropbox in a similar fashion. Uh, and before that, we, we reported other uh, threat actors, both from the cyber criminal uh, side of the house and also the nation state threat actors using different platforms such as Facebook and, and Twitter and uh, GitHub and uh, Bitbucket, it seems that it's trending. Like it started a couple of years ago. And as time goes by, we see more and more threat actors using or opting for this uh, option of basically abusing legitimate cloud-based services. It it makes a lot of sense from an operational um, security perspective. So what can these kinds of service providers do to try and prevent malicious actors from using their platforms in these kinds of ways? Yes. Um, first of all, I'm aware that, uh, or as, as far as I know, these uh, companies have excellent uh, threat intelligence and security teams, and they're working you know, to the best of their, ability, of their abilities to, to stop such attacks from, from happening. However, if you consider the number of potential Dropbox account or Facebook accounts or Gmail accounts that are out there. In a way, it's like, uh, you know, searching for a needle in a haystack and the attackers are always one step ahead. So it makes their job quite difficult. That being said, uh, this is also one of the reasons why we publish this report publicly. We want to contribute to the community and specifically for those type of companies, because I feel like they could be doing more. There are certain, I guess, behavioral patterns that they can, um, I, I guess, there are in our report that they can learn from and possibly uh, enhance their uh, security. The other thing that you mentioned earlier that I don't want to skip over is that you guys managed to find that the malware had roots that were about three years old. Um, how, as analysts, do you figure that out in the first place? Yes, that, that was uh, one of our, uh, I guess, uh, greatest achievement with this investigations because at the beginning, at the first couple of weeks, we were, as I told you, we, we reached dead ends. We couldn't find anything on this malware, but uh, we didn't give up. I think that's a, a one important quality uh, for any type of researcher. Don't give up. Uh, and we just looked at it from different angles. And luckily, we uh, realized that some of the metadata that was embedded in the malware binary, we were able to pivot on it and find an earlier sample from, I guess, 2019, I think. 
And from there, uh, we were able to pull other indicators. So we were able to work uh, our way all the way back to the initial variant that was created in 2018. Uh, so that was uh, a really fun rabbit hole, if you can call it that way, that we entered after trying many other rabbit holes that led to dead ends. This one was a successful one. And we could see how this malware evolved from a very simple reverse shell back in 2018, uh, really possibly one of the simplest we've seen, to a fully fledged, sophisticated rat. So we saw that every every couple of weeks, every couple of months, they came out with a new version. Each version extends uh, the capabilities of the, its previous uh, version, adding additional layer of stealth. Um, so that was really, really interesting to see. You could see like um, how the coders there worked. So it was really nice. So what do you think that we can reasonably infer from the evolution of the malware about who the attackers were or their motives or anything else that's important about this campaign? Well, uh, there there could be several things that could be deduced from this um, evolution research. Perhaps one of the most interesting one is that there are very little available uh, samples out there. I mean, aside from the samples that we got from our customers, there are maybe six or seven uh, samples available on VirusTotal from the last three years. This is a very, very low number of, you know, when we l- you look at a malware, take any commodity malware, you go three years back, you'll, you'll find it by the thousands, if not more. Go, uh, but okay, this is a, let's say, nation state threat actor, more sophisticated, more confidential. Still, the expectation is that you'll find a couple of dozens, a couple of hundreds over the course of three years. I mean, we, we've seen uh, threat actors nation state threat actors that you know if you go three years back you'll find thousands of samples here we only were able to find six or seven of these uh which really tells you how tight this operation was run they kept the target list very small targeting only select few it was like a like a surgical type of operation like they did not want to risk uh, the exposure of this malware. It's, so it's not like a prolific type of operation where you just like uh, cast a wide net and catch whoever you catch. This is a, a very uh, close-knit type of operation. So this is one thing that we could deduce fr- from analyzing the, the evolution of this malware. With regards to the threat actor, uh, we c- you could see when you analyze the code, when you analyze their operational security, when you analyze the way they conducted and operated themselves uh, while um, they were on the environment, we could tell that this is likely uh, a nation-state threat actor, uh, an Iranian one. We found uh, some interesting connection to other Iranian groups, but uh, our conclusion was that uh, this group is quite distinct, may have some connections that we don't do not fully know how to explain uh, to other group, but we feel that this is a completely independent group because it doesn't match any of the other Iranian groups patterns that we know. And 
This group has been, again, operating since at least 2018, and nobody knows anything about it. I mean, there's no documentation of this kind of operation uh, anywhere to be found publicly, at least. I'm sure some three-letter agencies must have some information about them, or maybe they don't, but um, it's still very interesting. Yeah, so why do you think it is? Is it that the attackers were just so careful not to make themselves known? Is it that the malware is particularly good from a technical standpoint at hiding itself? Why? What do you think is at the core of how these attackers were able to stay completely under the radar for three whole years? Uh, I think it's a combination. It's a little bit of both. um, If you look at the first versions of the malware, it wasn't that stealthy. It was actually quite noisy. So I think they kind of built up the stealth over time. Um, But even then, like the, even if you look at the older samples at the beginning, they, uh, not many uh, antivirus companies detected them like when they first uh, were submitted to uh, virus total. So they had a rather low detection rate. So that's one thing. Uh, but I, I mainly attribute it to the very um, low number of samples that is out there. I think this, uh, this malware was kept for, um, you know, special ops or like highly targeted operations. Like they didn't use it lightly. And I think this is ultimately how they were able to remain, to kind of to fly under the radar for, for such a long time, uh, just by reducing the exposure of this malware. Also, this malware, um, for instance, it would check for uh, the presence of antivirus software. It could kill itself. Uh, it has like a, like a suicide function if it recognizes that it's, it's likely to be um, detected um, and so on. So the... As, as I said at the beginning, it's a little bit of both or of, or of everything in a, in a way. So we know now about these attackers' existence and some details about them. But of course, there are as many questions as there are answers. So Asaf, as much as you can reasonably infer such things, what do we really believe about these hackers? What do we think they want what are they motivated by, and can we expect more from them? Well, I guess you cannot really uh, ignore or detach the you know the threat actor origin. We believe that, uh, or we have good reasons to believe that this threat actor uh, is an Iranian-based threat, uh, and you know we should probably consider uh, the geopolitics of it all and uh, how might. Um, an Iranian threat actor benefit from hacking into aerospace and telecommunication companies throughout the Middle East, but also in the US, Europe, uh, Russia. One can only imagine what type of information could be beneficial for the Iranian regime uh, when they target such industries. So now that we've heard the story, Asaf, what would you like listeners to take away from all of this? I think that uh, first and foremost, you really want to stay vigilant and don't just close an incident by containing it. You really want to understand, you know, who's behind it, how did they got in. You want to perform a root cause analysis. You want to 
uh, understand um, the motivation of the attack. And this is really important. I think this is a, where context really matters here and attribution matters. Um, the fact that we were able to uncover an operation uh, and a malware and a new threat group that has been operating for at least three years and without anyone knowing about it, at least publicly, I think this is uh, a good example of how you can facilitate your research to support your incident response and, and other types of, of security um, services or, or security operations within a gi- given company. So this is uh, one uh, key takeaway. Uh, the second thing is, I guess one of the reasons that we go public with this report is that we really want to uh, uh, raise awareness to such attacks, um, whether it's the Dropbox angle or just simply how a sophisticated threat actor can bypass a lot of security mechanism and security solution and stay under the radar for a long time. So um, that's why our report, uh, like many of our reports, are very rich in data, lots of example, lots of uh, screenshots, the commands that they were used, the tools, we have MITRE mapping. Uh, and the reason we do that is, uh, we, aside from the IOCs that we published, this is like the low-hanging fruit that uh, other security practitioners can look for, uh, there's a lot of behavioral information that can be uh, inferred or learned from our report. So uh, I think this could be a really good start for security practitioners especially in the aerospace and telecommunications industry, but potentially other industries as well, to, to start looking for similar threats in their environments. That's it for this B-Side episode. Thank you for listening. If you're curious about Operation Ghost Shell and wish to learn more about the Shell client rat and the newly discovered Iranian threat actor Malkamak, You'll find the full report at cyberreason.com slash ghostshell. As always, our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife or me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Nate Nelson is our senior producer, sound design by Benora Bari. Thanks to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye bye. Oh my god. Oh my god. CK music.